Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. Dr. Casey Grover here again as your host. Today, we're going to be doing a literature review, not of a peer-reviewed publication, but of an article from The Atlantic that I found extremely interesting. The article was sent to me by a colleague after a discussion about drug demand. We were talking about youth drug use, and the question came up in my mind of, why do youth feel the need to experiment or use drugs and alcohol? We talk so much about the treatment of substance use disorders, but what about preventing them in the first place? And my colleague sent me this article that we're going to go through today on how one country was able to do just that. So we'll dive right in. The article is from January 19th of 2017 and was published in the magazine The Atlantic. The author is Emma Young, and the title says it all, How Iceland Got Teens to Say No to Drugs. And it's available online. You can just do a Google search or whatever other search engine you use search for how Iceland got teens to say no to drugs. The article begins by discussing where Iceland started. The author interviews some Icelandic psychologists who report that in the late 1990s, Icelandic teens were among the heaviest drinking youth in Europe. There were also high rates of drug use and cigarette smoking. The percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds in Iceland who had been drunk in the previous month was 42% in 1998. The percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds in Iceland who had ever used cannabis was 17% in 1998. And the percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds in Iceland who smoked cigarettes daily was 23% in 1998. And with interventions over the next two decades, which we will be discussing shortly, Iceland was able to drop these numbers by enormous amounts. The percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds in Iceland who had been drunk in the previous month was 5% in 2016. The percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds in Iceland who had ever used cannabis was 7% in 2016. And the percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds in Iceland who smoked cigarettes daily was 3% in 2016. So that is a 90, 90% drop in teen alcohol use, a 60, 60% drop in teen cannabis use, and an 87% drop in teen cigarette use. Those numbers are unbelievable. So what did they do to make this huge change? It began with some research from an American psychologist named Harvey Milkman, who also teaches part of the year in Iceland in addition to the United States. He began by asking the same question I was thinking, which was, why do people start using drugs? But he also asked another key question, which is, why do they continue using drugs? 
He looked at why people use drugs in some of his research, and he noted that people chose to use various drugs based on how they dealt with stress. As an example, he noted that heroin users wanted to numb themselves from stress, while amphetamine users wanted to actively confront their stress. And making the leap to kids, Milkman noted that some children might have problematic ways of dealing with stress before they even began using drugs. And these problematic ways of dealing with stress would set them up for a substance use disorder. For example, kids who dealt with stress by confronting it might get a rush from doing something like stealing or vandalism. They are the type of person who would be predisposed based on this research to amphetamine use. So when these kids were exposed to amphetamine, the intense stimulation or rush from the drug played right into their already existing mental model of coping with stress, leading to heavy and regular amphetamine use shortly after starting. And so the next step was to find out how to develop healthy coping strategies in kids prior to when they were exposed to drugs or alcohol. Or, put a slightly different way, if people do things such as stealing, vandalism, drugs, or gambling to alter their brain chemistry to feel high in a way that makes them feel better, why can't we get people high on their own brain chemistry to make them feel better? So, Milkman and his research team started a program called Project Self-Discovery to see if this was possible. They took teens starting at the age of 14 who were referred by teachers, school nurses, and counselors for problems with drugs or petty crime. And they did not frame any of the services given in this program as treatment. They simply told the kids, we'll teach you whatever you want, whether it be sports, art, music, or martial arts. The idea was to pair kids with activities that worked well with their brain chemistry. Some might want a calm or focusing activity to help with anxiety. Some might want a very stimulating activity to help with the rush they were seeking when trying to confront their stress. They also provided the kids with life skills training as a part of the program, helping the kids to improve their interpersonal relationships and how they thought about themselves. Milkman was quoted in this article about his work, quote, the main principle was that drug education doesn't work because nobody pays attention to it. What are needed are the life skills to act on that information, end quote. And it worked. It was designed to be a three-month program and it was so successful that some kids stayed as long as five years. In 1991, knowing that they had a problem with teen drug and alcohol use, Iceland invited Milkman to talk about his work. And the question came up, what if you could use healthy alternatives to drugs and alcohol as a part of a program not to treat kids with problems, but to stop kids drinking or taking drugs in the first place? which is exactly, once again, the question that I was thinking, why can't we prevent substance use disorders in our youth? Iceland surveyed all of its youth in 1992 to get a baseline understanding of what was happening. And as we discussed in the introduction to this article, Icelandic teens were using alcohol, cannabis, and cigarettes heavily. When they analyzed their data, they looked for protective factors against drug and alcohol use, and they found four. Number one, Participation in organized activities, especially sports, three to four times per week. Number two, total time spent with parents during the week. Number three, feeling cared about at school. And number four, 
not being outdoors in the late evenings. They also looked at drug and alcohol prevention efforts in other places, such as the United States, and noted that kids being warned about the dangers of drugs and alcohol weren't working to prevent drug and alcohol use. So Iceland decided to do something different. And so was born the program called Youth in Iceland, which did the following. Number one, it became illegal to buy tobacco under 18 and alcohol under 20. Number two, alcohol and tobacco advertising was banned. Number three, links between parents and schools were strengthened. Parental organizations by law were established in every school and school councils with parent representatives were established in every school. Number four, parents were encouraged to spend as much time with their children with a focus on talking to their kid about their kids' lives, knowing who their kids were friends with, and keeping kids home in the evenings. Number five, they established a curfew for kids aged 13 to 16 of 10 p.m. in the winter and midnight in the summer. Number six, they also created agreements for parents to sign and pledge to be a part of their children's health. Parents were pledging not to allow their kids to have unsupervised parties, not to buy drugs or alcohol for minors, and to keep an eye on the well-being of other children. And these pledges functioned to keep parental behavior consistent, so kids couldn't complain that other parents were more lax than their own. And number seven, government funding was increased for organized sport, music, art, dance, and other clubs. And this functioned to give kids ways to feel part of a group and to align kids with activities that made them feel good, to pair them with activities that worked well for their brain chemistry. They could use their sport, art, music, or whatever else to deal with their stress and emotions in a healthful way rather than seeking out drugs and alcohol. And we were trying to avoid here the situation where children are set up for problematic substance use because they already have poor mental mechanisms for dealing with their stress. And to finance all this increased activity for the kids, the Icelandic government gave money to the families to pay for it so it wasn't a financial burden. Now, we know from the numbers described at the beginning of the article that drug and alcohol use in teens in Iceland went down as a result of these interventions. But what else happened? From 1997 to 2012, the amount of time that 15 and 16-year-olds spent with their parents on weekdays doubled. And in that same time period, the percentage of 15 and 16-year-olds who participated in an organized sport four or more times per week also doubled. When similar surveys of teens were done in other parts of Europe, they identified the same protective factors against drug use and alcohol as was found in Iceland in that initial survey they did in 1992. Number one, participation in organized activities, especially sports, three to four times per week. Number two, total time spent with parents during the week. Number three, feeling cared about at school. And number four, not being outdoors in the late evenings. This model from Iceland has been applied to other places on the planet who have also seen drops in teen drug and alcohol use. But there are also some other benefits that have emerged from this model. Number one, reduction in teen suicides. And number two, 
reduction in crime committed by children. And to me, this quote from the article really sums up everything. Quote, We learned through the studies that we need to create circumstances in which kids can lead healthy lives and they do not need to use substances because life is fun and they have plenty to do and they are supported by parents who will spend time with them. Now, in my mind, the next question is, where else can we do this? A 90% drop in teen alcohol use is unbelievable. And the answer is that it's actually pretty complicated depending on the culture in a particular country. And the author actually goes into this in detail at the end of the article. But I was wondering, could we do this in the United States? And I think in 2021, people are so divided in their perspectives, particularly about who's running the government, that I don't think people would want the federal government to try to control what our kids are doing, even if it's for the better. But perhaps one of us could apply it to our own community, or city, or county, or our kids' schools. This is certainly great food for thought, and perhaps local regional programs could emerge to make a difference in smaller communities. Okay, let's wrap this up. First of all, I found this article to be extremely thought-provoking, and I hope you did too. My take-home points were really simple. Number one, we need to address mental health in kids and teach them healthy ways to deal with the stress of life before they start using drugs and alcohol. Number two, Giving kids healthy activities to do helps them to develop healthy life skills, including how to deal with stress, and avoids unoccupied time that might lead to experimentation with drugs and alcohol. Number three, parents really matter. And number four, the protective factors against drug and alcohol use in kids were, number one, participation in organized activities, especially sports, three to four times per week. Number two, total time spent with parents during the week, number three, feeling cared about at school, and number four, not being outdoors in the late evenings. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. This is the end of the episode, and don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives. Mm -hmm.